designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. A special thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at BQE.com. My motto that I live by, and I've used this quote for everything, literally, is if there is no well to drink from, dig until you create one. I love it. Um, Essentially, every space that I've stepped into, I didn't have the example there before Mm -hmm. me to emulate and to follow behind. And that's okay. That does not mean you're in the wrong space. It means that you're creating that space now. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. This week's conversation was a fun one for me because I got to have an in-depth conversation with Tierra Hughes. We'd briefly met in the past, but this was the first time we were able to get to know each other and it definitely felt like we were kindred spirits. We cover the impact of attending a PWI, which stands for Predominantly White Institution. We also talk about how representation matters and how we both were affected by having or not having Black professors during our architectural studies. Something else that we got into, which is super important for students to understand, is the different types of degree programs and how different degrees impact when you can start taking your licensure exams for architecture. We touch on working through grief and how to create a support network so you can keep going. It's such a great conversation, and I am thrilled to share it with you. Tierra is amazing, and so let me read her bio for you to set the stage. A St. Louis native, now based in Chicago, Tierra Hughes is a senior urban designer at Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, SOM, an adjunct professor at the Illinois Institute of Technology, a commissioner with the City of Chicago Landmarks Commission, and a real estate professional. She's a devoted activist, educator, and advocate for underrepresented communities and voices, 
and currently serves on the board of the National Organization of Minority Architects, NOMA, and is the Chamley Persky House Board of Directors for the Society of Architectural Historians. Tira's personal experiences in the industry, along with her passion for advocacy, led her to establish a national research initiative called First 500 in 2018. As the founder and executive director of First 500, Tira travels the country to raise awareness about the importance of Black women architects throughout history and highlights their contribution to the built environment. Tiara is a believer in giving back to her community, serving as the co-leader of SOM's ACE Mentorship Program in Chicago. As a designer, Tiara is driven by creating work that emphasizes greater socioeconomic equity and cultural awareness. She believes, ultimately, our efforts to positively impact communities of color will expand outward and evolve our academic institutions, our firms, our industry, and by extension, our communities. In 2021, Tierra received the prestigious AIA Associates Award given by the Institute to associate members who best exemplify the highest qualities of leadership and have demonstrated an unparalleled commitment to their component or region's membership. So seeing as Tierra is a commissioner with the City of Chicago Landmarks Commission, I thought this week's building spotlight would feature a recently landmarked building in Chicago, and it's the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley House which is located at 6427 South St. Lawrence Avenue. Tierra was one of the Chicago commissioners to vote to approve the landmark status of this important building, and I'll put a link to the landmark designation in the show notes in case you want to learn more. And you can also visit the Tangible Remnants Instagram page to see images of the building and all of the buildings that have been spotlighted on the podcast so far. So this building spotlight is on the two-story brick building that was built in 1895, Alma Carthan purchased the two flat in November of 1951, and Mammy and Emmett Till moved into the three-bedroom apartment on the second floor, and an uncle and aunt lived on the first-floor apartment. The exterior of the home has been modified slightly since August 1955. For example, the concrete front steps have been replaced with wooden steps and a small covered porch, and the basement windows have been replaced by glass block. As many of us know, the torture and lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi in August of 1955, set a fire to the movement to advance civil rights in America. His mother, Mamie Till Mobley, dedicated her life to the civil rights movement, keeping Emmett's story alive to remind people of the horrors of segregation and racism. And so while this house is not an architectural marvel, according to the Municipal Code of Chicago, the Commission on Chicago Landmarks has the authority to make recommendation of landmark designation for a building, structure, object, or district if the commission determines that it meets at least two of the stated criteria for designation. And so the commission determined that the house met criteria one based on its value as an example of an architectural, cultural, economic, historic, social, or other aspect of the heritage of the city of Chicago, state of Illinois, or the United States, as well as criteria three based on its identification with a person or persons who significantly contributed to the architectural, cultural, economic, historic, social, or other aspect of the development of the city of Chicago, state of Illinois, or the United States. The elevation of this house to landmark status, based on something other than architectural integrity, is something that excites me in the field of preservation, and it's going to be able to continue to tell the story of Emmett Till and become a pilgrimage site for people who are learning more about history. It's definitely one of the places that I will be trying to visit the next time I go to Chicago which will be next month in June when I'll be going to attend the American Institute of Architects National Convention. I'll be there, so please find me and say hi if you'll be attending as well. 
And now, without further ado, please enjoy this enlightening conversation between me and Tierra Hughes. So I guess, why don't we start with what got you into architecture? Nikita, I always get the you're so young comments and the miles are there now. I just want to put that out there. (laughs) But for me, it started very early on. I was actually accepted into a gifted arts program in second grade. And we had this fundraiser that we had to create artwork to sell to raise money so that every student in the school would get a gift during the month of December. So it wasn't for Christmas or, you know, we celebrated Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever was in December, we celebrated and every student received a gift. And so for me, my contribution to that was learning at the time that I'd I had an interest in buildings and being able to draw them from books verbatim at such a young age and understanding, kind of tying the connection of, oh, somebody actually does this. The following year, I saw blueprints for the first time, which we don't even have those anymore. And I'm very sad about it because... The smell and like the weight of them. (laughs) The feel of the ink on your fingers, like, oh, it's not like... This new generation will never know. No, they might be a little healthier. There's probably some chemicals we probably shouldn't have been touching in them. But listen, I understand. Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. But yeah, so I saw blueprints for the first time and I understood what I was looking at with floor plans, which was just mind boggling to my teachers at the time. Mm -hmm. But I understood a door swing and like windows and walls. And I was just like, I want to be the person that creates this space. And in third grade, that's when a lady told me, you want to be an architect. And that stuck with me. So I didn't actually see architecture again in any shape or form until high school. Okay. Officially in courses. Right. And of course, I was the only girl and the only student of color in mm-hmm. all of those classes that's every year. story. Yep. I hear that. I hear that. And so then what type of courses in high school? Was it like AutoCAD or modeling or same more? It was civil engineering and architecture. Mm-hmm. We, did, we also had some programs classes where actually Revit wasn't even owned by Autodesk at the time, which is, and, <laughs> still oh, yeah. blows my mind. But remind about. me, because I know you're a little bit younger than me, because I, but I feel like I don't even think Revit existed when I was in high school. <laughs> but, but remind me what year are we talking? We're talking, I graduated in 2009 from high okay. school. So okay. it was quite some time ago. Okay. So I graduated in 2002. So not that much younger, but still like technology. That's like decades of technology. Yes. Time. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's true. And yeah, modeling, also like building physical models. We had a wood shop, which was unheard of for a high school. We had a whole campus. It was a really wild experience. But what I did learn from that, Nikita, is that was ultimately preparing me for the industry, gotcha. you know, being the only girl and the only person of color in all of those classes every year. Mm-hmm. And geographically, where did you grow up? Born and raised in St. Louis. Okay. Right. And very diverse communities. I grew up in a hood. Let's be very clear. Okay. And the school that I mentioned, the campus mm-hmm. was an A plus school, Kirkwood High School and, you know, just out of St. Louis. And I was accepted into that high school through the desegregation program. So you had to basically. Fascinating. 
excellent grades and like a perfect profile to get into that school. And I was bused 45 minutes. So then was it still called like the desegregation program, even in 2006, 2007, or did they have a, a nicer name for it or a no. polite name? When I was there, it was called the desegregation program. Damn. And and they've sensed when I was in high school, they actually went away with it. Mm-hmm. And then they've reintroduced it recently. And it's a totally different name now. But of course, they're not using the term desegregation. Right. That's fascinating. Like, I feel like a lot of programs that were busing programs for schools and that sort of stuff, they tweaked the name. They tried to reframe it into something less Integration. Racial. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. So even in, even in this century, it was still desegregation. Glad you did what you did. And so I, I did something similar in high school where I did drafting. So even in Virginia, Northern Virginia, still very diverse. It sounds like similar upbringing or not a school that I had to test into by any means, but it was just one of those. I did AutoCAD. I was one of the few women, girls at the time, one of the few people of color, but my teacher was actually a black male. And it was one of those things where like, there weren't that many black teachers at my high school, particularly in the trades. That was probably one of the reasons I liked the course so much, but anyways. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, that's right. Representation matters, right? Really I've does. never had a Black professor in architecture ever. Oh, um, interesting. College or high school or anything, because I went to a PWI. But the last thing I would say about high school mm-hmm. was whenever I started my freshman year, mm-hmm. just shortly after, maybe a month or so after we started, we actually relocated to another county in St. Louis. My mother, she was a single mom. Mm -hmm. And the schools for that county, they were not A-plus schools. They were not the same caliber. Mm -hmm. And my mom said, so what do you want to do? I said, I got to stay at this school. And so that meant waking up at 4 a.m. every day for the four years of high school. Oh, my gosh. Did you also do yes. sports or any extracurriculars? I did. I, I How was did you manage? A star athlete in <laughs> oh track and gosh. field. So anytime we had a meet for track and field, I would get home at 1 a.m. and then back up at 4 a.m. to school. That's dedication. And when they say it takes a village, like we're talking about, oh, I don't want to get emotional. We're talking about like the pe- the old ladies that rode the bus with me at, mm-hmm. you know, four o'clock in the morning. I would be falling asleep and they would always wake me up for my stop. And like, you know, hey, we missed you yesterday. Oh, you know, I had a doctor's appointment. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they were taking care of me because my mom wasn't with me on the commutes. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was and she trusted me enough. Right. But like (laughs) send me on this two hour journey every morning and evening to and from school. Right. Because I feel like I feel like for many of us, the expectation that we will get good grades, we will stay out of trouble, we will act a certain way, we will act like we got some sense. I think that's real. And particularly for you, where it sounds like you had to already had to prove yourself to get into this high school. I'm assuming your mom was like, oh, you're not going to ruin this. You're, you are going to live up to the potential because you know what's on the line. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, yeah. it was great. And look, the struggle was real, but it was so worth it. Because like I said, I encountered a lot of kind of racial bias and just Mm-hmm. racial kind of stigmas and yeah. things that existed from classmates, teachers, whoever. Right. And I was mm-hmm. just constantly proving myself. And I feel like it really prepared me for college and the real world. Right. Yeah. So then let's talk about college. Did you know going into college, you were going to go into architecture and did you apply to a four-year program or a five-year program out of high school? I did know that I was going to go to um, architecture school. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't have a lot of support on school options and things like that. I'm a first generation. So mm-hmm. my family was like, we can't help you, which is fine. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, there were two schools in Missouri that offers architecture degrees. Okay. WashU, which was a dream school, but it's mm-hmm. so close to home. And then Drury was the other school, Drury University in Springfield, mm-hmm. Missouri. Okay. And so I decided on Drury to go and attend And it was about three and a half hours away from where we lived. So far enough that, you know, you're away. Legit, legit. (laughs) But still close enough, you know, that if if I needed to jump on the road, I could. So jury was the decision. And I got so lucky because I was the incoming class that started the five-year master's program. Oh, very nice. So the classes before us were five-year bachelors. Dang, I didn't realize that there was a five-year bachelors. Yeah. Interesting. So I did DVA. And so it was, so University of Virginia, for similar reasons, it was like two hours away from where I grew up. And I really wanted to go to Columbia, but my mom convinced me otherwise, mainly because of that in-state tuition. It's real. But I didn't realize the whole four-year plus two-year or five-year and all that sort of thing. And so I remember getting to the end of fourth year at UVA and being like, I'm sorry, what do you mean I have to go back to grad school? What is this? I have a Bachelor of Science in Architecture. And they're like, well, if you want to get licensed, you need to go get a Master's of Architecture. So like, I love that you were in that class where you're able to do the five-year Master's program, not have to go back to grad school. Like, to be, like that's, uh, I feel like any advice I would have to students is if possible, look into the five-year programs. They're good options. <laughs> and there's also five-year bachelor of architecture because you know there's the bachelor of science in architecture bachelor of art and architecture you know all of the right the ones that require the additional degree mm-hmm. but then there is the bachelor of architecture too um, which i i recently learned all of this as a professor you know iit the school i teach at has the five-year bachelor of architecture so that is an accredited degree that's a bachelor's And then do students, I assume students would still have to go to get their master's to then be able to sit for the test or no? No, it's an accredited bachelor's. So they could if they want to, but it's not required for the license. Awesome. So I'm, I'm learning a lot. (laughs) And I (laughs) think it should start making that more clear in high school for students so that you can be more informed about your decision of college. Yes. Particularly when you're thinking about financial aid and not all of us are going to have parents that can actually pay for us to go through all the years of schooling that we need to, to get our license. So that's super helpful. Just dropping knowledge. Appreciate that. (laughs) So you mentioned you didn't have any professors of color in architecture. So say more about that experience at the PWI. PWI. I feel you on that. I feel you. Start. I feel you. Listen, we're going to be some kindred spirits in this conversation. I feel it. (laughs) Look, we are linked. Okay. I feel like I feel in alignment with our experiences. (laughs) Jury was such a difficult space to navigate for many reasons. I mentioned before, I'm a first-generation college student, and that really does come with a whole slew of obstacles and challenges that I think people just don't even understand, especially if college is ingrained in your upbringing. And so the first two years was really a struggle for me. And then I sort of figured out the formula after that. 
And I was fortunate enough because we are a five-year master's program, our program requires us to both have a full-time internship and a study abroad experience in order to graduate oh, with wow. master's. So like full-time while you're doing your workload or is it like a co-op where you go work and you're not taking classes? Like a summer. Oh, dang. Okay. All right. Or it could count at, if you do part-time work, but it has to, the total number of hours required is a full-time. So gotcha. okay. if you did part-time or you're working, it'll just be longer. So very interesting and exciting experience. Study abroad. I lived in Greece on an island. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> and this is pivotal to our discussion. But yes. Going. Okay. So then say more. What part of Greece? Agina is one of the larger islands. Okay. How long? Four months. That's like legit time. Okay. So then what was it like from a cultural standpoint, being an American, being a Black woman in Greece? So this island that I lived on, you know, like the islands are more remote. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of things that were culture shock, like not having septic systems. Oh, <laughs> so okay. you can't flush anything. Like it was wild. So was it like um, outhouse situations? They did have working toilets, but okay. you couldn't flush any of the, any of the got toiletries. You. I got you. So, okay. All right. Okay. So it was just different worlds living. Mm-hmm. And then the showers, like the hot water only lasted five minutes tops. So you had to come up with a system for that as well. (laughs) So it was just, it was all just really great to escape and just learn a new culture, be really, we had to take a year of Greek, the language before we moved over. And you knew a little bit of the language and the food and just the culture, everything was like, just surreal. You're Mm -hmm. totally away from everything that you know and your norm. I highly recommend study abroad for everybody (laughs) or just living in a different place. But Greece for me was a pivotal moment in my kind of studies and my career. I didn't have a career at the time, but it, it informed a lot of who I am today because of the historic preservation that exists over there. For us, we're such a new country, you know. Such a new country. Yes. And Greece is like ancient, right? And and actually their perspective of who they are and their identity on earth was also enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, they consider themselves like origin zero, zero on earth, like the center point of all civilization, which okay. was also it informed a lot of their historic mm-hmm. monuments and mm-hmm. the way they had this esteem about themselves was because of that mantra and how they right. view themselves, right? Yeah. But totally opposite of us, where we have this kind of friction between preserving our very young old buildings, right? right. And new developments versus them, preservation trumps all, right? Yeah. So anytime you could be walking down a street and you'll have different villas and, and like homes or cottages or whatever, and then you come across an open field where clearly they were preparing for some new construction. But upon like digging for the foundation, they discovered something. And so all construction is at a halt, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, you saw that everywhere. Sometimes you would have a line of, you know, Adobe buildings or whatever, and then there's just an opening. And then there's this kind of 
monolithic stone, clearly excavated right. structure mm-hmm. there for you to see as well on display. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I, I totally concur on the studying and broadening out of the country, all that good stuff. So I, when I was in grad school, I spent some time in Plymouth, England, and it took me a couple of weeks of being there to realize that Plymouth, England, as in like the Plymouth where the pilgrims are left from. And I was like, oh, right. I was some, a little bit slow. But anyways, <laughs> one of the professors, we were talking about preservation in the States and all that. And he was like, you guys treat your buildings too precious. We have castles older than your country. And it's, that's fair. That's a very good point. So it's like the perspective and like the long view of many other cultures outside of the U.S. who are a bit older. That mm. I love that point. I love it. And so you said that Greece was pivotal. And knowing where you are now, I can see the through line in terms of like preservation and getting involved with it. And so then I guess once you got back from Greece, what did you start looking for on the preservation side? I think uh, the dots were connected a little bit later for me in my career. What I will say is in some of my designs, like my thesis project, I purposefully chose to be adjacent to a historic district in Shanghai, for instance, from my location. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did little intricate things, making sure to incorporate culture into the designs that I introduced, even the new construction blank slate, you know, right, middle of nowhere (laughs) project prompts that they gave us. But I was very intentional about plugging in the culture and certain aspects of the intangible parts of preservation, as well as being intentional about materiality, local materials, and the connection of preservation and sustainability was really important and a pivotal moment for me as well that kind of all have equated themselves into who I am now, I guess, as a Landmarks Commissioner. I love it. And I love it. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you is because I feel like on the East Coast, I have a good sense of who are the Black women architects and all that, because we have the network over here. We have the Black women architecture network and all that. But even within that network, there's still so few Black women who are in sustainability and preservation. So I was like, wait a minute, Tiara's on the Landmarks Commission, and she's in this preservation, and she's doing this. So I was like, oh, we need to talk. This is amazing. Because <laughs> it, it's just, it's, there's so many overlapping things. And so then from a sustainability standpoint, what got you into sustainability? Yeah, I think, well, understanding when you take deeper, what populations of people are most impacted by natural disasters, by us using harmful materials and manufacturing processes, and the industrial revolution, which populations of people were most affected by that, naturally lended me into an area and empowered me to use my voice, right, to really have a standpoint on First of all, who determines what's important for preservation? Who determines who our built environment should be sustained for? All of these things were, I would say, little learning nuggets along the way for me, where my career now, like I said, has connected all of the dots and tied it all together. But being fortunate enough to be a Black woman in a space like SOM, right, that has the resources for me to use my voice and platform and also serving a city like Chicago that is one of the largest cities in the U.S. and is kind of a leading example in preservation and sustainability has been an absolute honor. (laughs) I'm just like, 
Sometimes I need to sit back and reflect on that. And right. So then let's take a step back. How did you get this? Before I talk about SOM, sure. I do want to say one more thing about about college, PWI world. Oh, yeah. We could talk about, yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) So (laughs) the last thing I would say about the PWI world was there is a need for more support for students of color that are in these programs because I'm sure like me, most students who are currently in them are the only or one of two, one of a handful And it's a very isolating space. And you're also not really connected to your Eurocentric curriculum. And then you have requirements like studying abroad, which was a life-changing experience. But unfortunately, I could not afford. Mm -hmm. And upon coming back to the States, I actually went to my university for help. You know, I said, hey, I need housing. Is it Mm -hmm. possible? And... It was very jarring. They set up a meeting with me and essentially crunched the numbers, Mm -hmm. which (laughs) was also like a slap in the face because I go to school. I know how to crunch numbers. I run your math center. Like I'm I'm smart enough to know how much I need to pay and when I need it by. Mm -hmm. But ultimately that led to me being homeless for an entire semester. So pause there. Homeless as in like, Sleeping out of your car, homeless, homeless as in like couch surfing, homeless. What kind of homeless? Homeless as in I didn't have a car at the time. So I was sleeping in our buildings um, at night. Wow. So sleep, like sneaking into the student center or our architecture building, sleeping on my desk, sleeping on random couches and buildings and Mm -hmm. just trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, Damn, that's super hard. For anyone, even someone who's not a student, but especially for a student when you're trying to figure out how to still get your workload done, how to graduate. And architecture is not an easy, not an easy degree at all to go through. And to mean, to some extent, it may have even been a little bit of a blessing that you were in that program, considering all night culture and all sort of stuff. So like being in those buildings at those times probably wouldn't have been as weird if you were like, I don't know, doing math or algebra. (laughs) (laughs) But still like that's, massive and like props to you for getting through that but it's also unfortunate that you even had to go through that experience yes and I always try to make the point that I'm sure I'm not the only one 100% yeah you know so Mm -hmm. this is like a call to action to the PWIs to pay more attention (laughs) yeah and particularly to understanding the needs are financial as well as room and board and it's so much more than just, okay, well, now you're here. How do you actually make it? So students of color and students who are there can actually survive and thrive there, thrive. not just be there to, you know. Check a box. Exactly. Be the token. Oof. Wow. And so part of the reason I became an architect was because I didn't understand as a child seeing homeless people sleeping outside of vacant buildings. And so that's, for me, has always been the connection between vacant buildings, preservation, architecture, sustainability. So it's like my access to preservation wasn't because, oh, some dead old white Americans slept here, but because there are buildings that people need and buildings need people, people in buildings. How can we actually make this work together? Of course, now my career, I'm realizing, oh, developers, the money, that's more of a thing. (laughs) But like architects still have a, a role to play in that. And so then what eventually got you out of your homeless situation? 
Oh, so I actually had a, a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, before I studied abroad, my, let me back up a step. Sorry. Sure. No, you're good. My grandfather was my beacon, my beacon of lights, my everything, right? Mm-hmm. And right before I went overseas to Greece, he was diagnosed with large cell lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just could not focus. I was like, I need to be home. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> you right, know, I was right. doing all of this for us and I just want to be by your side now. Mm-hmm. And he made me a promise. I'll be here at the finish line, but I need you to finish. (laughs) And so when I got back from Greece, he was sick and he still went to the bank every month on the 5th to drop some funds in my account for food. And I just bawled my face off every month because (laughs) I was like, how is it that this human can have such unconditional love for me and see something in me that I can't even see at the moment. It's like the struggle really makes you kind of a haze, right? You right. cannot see your potential and where you're going to go and what you're capable of. But he mm-hmm. saw all of that and he traveled to the bank every month and proved to me, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> right. I'm worth it. Oh. And he was the reason. And so upon graduation, mm-hmm. he was there. Um, He wasn't physically there, but he was there virtually on the screen. It was our big day. We walked the stage. Right. And yeah, that was probably one of my best memories. Shortly after that, we had this big rah-rah celebration for me that he forced my mother and his other daughter, my aunt, to put on for me. But it was like, oh my gosh, all the family, it was so great. Mm -hmm. And he was like the driving force behind that happening and celebrating me. And during our, one of our last conversations, he mm-hmm. said, you know, I kept my promise. Oh. And you did. You did. Yes. Like, now I need something from you. Mm-hmm. And literally, Nikita, I would have given him the shirt off my back. Like, he, I he feel could have told me anything, okay? Right. And he said, now I need you to make me a promise. And he started with, I'm not always going to be here with you physically. Mm-hmm. And I'm like bawling at this point. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is foreign. I don't understand. (laughs) Where is this going? Right. And he said, but I'll always be here to light your way. Mm -hmm. And I need you to promise me that you're going to set out to do everything we talked about. You're going to travel the world like we planned. You're going to mentor young Black girls, hence Mm -hmm. First 500, from similar backgrounds as you. You're going to continue. You're going to change the world. And I love that he spoke that vision to you. That's so powerful. Like he spoke it. He believed it. He held it for you. That's a blessing. Oh, my gosh. So, Nikita, here you are. Here you are. We have him to thank for that. That is amazing. Wow. Oh, I love that. Anytime I step into a new place, Mm -hmm. anytime I'm traveling to a new city, Mm -hmm. anytime I'm mentoring women or Black girls, I'm just looking up and smiling because I'm keeping that promise. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm sure he's so proud because like you're living up to it. I love that he was like, like we planned. Like, yes. Oh, I love that. I still Mm -hmm. love that. And Within a week of that conversation, he passed away. Yep. He probably needed to make sure that you knew 
and that he could see you be taken care of, he knew you were good. Like, you know what I mean? Like he knew that he was ready to pass on after making sure you were sorted. Remember I said he was diagnosed three years ago, large cell lung cancer at the time. The survival rate was Mm -hmm. three to six months from being diagnosed when he was diagnosed and he stuck around for three years. He fought for you then. Oh, in more ways than one. Oh, and when I say like my grandma and his his daughters, everyone, we had more time with him because of you. We can't, I don't think you understand. You were his light. Oh, so it's, you know, it's a big, like the first year I would say was pretty numb. That was when I moved to Chicago. 2015 was such a haze and yeah, yeah, but like it was healing and trying to recenter myself and like getting on track, right? Go and start fulfilling this destiny that essentially that he set out for me. Yeah. Oh, like that's, I'm proud of you for being able to step into that. And I know how hard grief can be. You know, that's a story for another time, but the fact that you were able and willing to step into that destiny instead of collapsing under the grief, it's huge. And I'm so thankful. I'm proud of you for doing that. And you're absolutely right about the collapsing part because Mm -hmm. I couldn't even talk about any of it for like years, but Hundred percent. You find a way, and you just mm-hmm. keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's real. Thinking though about like the continuations. So then we talked about PWI. I will say that I guess mainly just because I feel like I should give a shout out. I did actually have three different black professors in architecture, even going through the PWIs. I know, right? I know. So my first studio professor, Susan Carpenter. She's, I think now Susan Bloomquist at Payette. I also had William Williams. I think, I don't know where he is now, but he was a teacher. He came from Rice. He taught EBA for a while. And then at Penn, Mark Gardner was my professional practice teacher. So I did not realize how like rare that was. I probably should have made that connection, but legit. Okay. Thank you, teachers. And thank you for teaching as well as you're giving people another example of, yes, Black women exist in this space, in this profession. Now let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and how to find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in years to come. You can register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free 
and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's bqe.com masterclass. And now let's get back to the show. So then after college, what got you to SOM? So I had decided on Chicago as a location and I knew like it was, I, I said, yeah. after being in one of the largest cities of Missouri, Springfield's top three cities, population mm-hmm. size of Missouri with 8% being all minorities in one of the largest cities Just in the 8%. state, 8%. The not just Blacks, but Blacks, Asians, Latino, whatever, right? Dang. Non-white. Right. Made up 8%. <laughs> Culture shock, okay? Yes. So I was like running to Chicago. If I could, I would have ran by foot, okay? <laughs> and I get here and I'm like, okay, yeah, I figured this out. I started looking online for like Black, Black women, mm-hmm. Black Black architects, and it was just mm-hmm. very fragmented. A mentor mentioned Noma, and I was like, what's that? Ooh, tell right. me more, you know? <laughs> and once I arrived, I knew that I wanted to get into kind of some of the more prominent firms. I didn't know how, I didn't have any mm-hmm. connections. And so I went through one of the contracting groups. And I started as a contract technical personnel for technical designer for HOK. Oh, nice. So like uh, like an architecture temp staffing agency kind of thing? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm not going to give them a shout out because... No problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I started with them and went to HOK. Okay. And that was, oh, that was a jarring experience too. There was like six of us working on the largest project in their Chicago office. Mm -hmm. And when we say like all nighters and Mm. the whole like work-life balance thing, not being a thing, it was also, I think because I was younger and closer to studio life from school, I was able to do it. But now. Yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But I did get to the finishing stage of that project to when we handed it off to our consultants. And then I made the move. I said, hey, I am going to lay down roots in Chicago. So I need a real job. <laughs> and I also want to go to a smaller environment to just see the difference and figure it out. So I went to a smaller firm and it was good. It was a good change of pace. I was there for two and a half years. And this was a pivotal moment because this is where I plugged into Noma. Okay. And this is also when I created First 500. Got you. And First 500 was founded in 2018. Mm -hmm. Highly encourage our listeners to go visit first500.org to learn more. It is that centralized location for Black women architects that I have mentioned multiple times in this talk, this amazing Mm -hmm. conversation with Nikita. But yes, it was founded in 2018. So then Nikita, I wear the hats and boom, I say it's time for a change. Okay. Wow. 
So I love that. And like, I love that you created First 500. I'm also like, just geographically, I forget how big the country is in the sense where, all right, there is like a whole swath of Midwest and Western architects, black women architects that I don't know. (laughs) Cause I'm like in the the East coast, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have the black women architecture network. And like we do the black women architecture brunch and all that sort of stuff. And that just came out of, you know, there's a crew of us down here. Like, Oh wait, don't you know? So-and-so. And And there just happened to be Mm -hmm. a contingent of like black women architects in the DC metropolitan area. And so like, I don't love that you didn't have that, but I love that you created (laughs) the network for Chicago and for the Midwest and expanding nationwide and having such an impact and bringing different groups together to keep making those connections because it's so important to be able to have that voice and for other architects to know we exist. And like people's minds are blown when they realize, wait, what do you mean there's not that many black women architects? And I love the juxtaposition that you do to be like, more people have been to space than there are licensed black women architects. That's such a huge pivot point for people to understand the numbers that we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I didn't realize when I was going through my education, even though I wasn't seeing that many black women architects in architecture, I didn't realize that so few of us existed. Like it wasn't until getting more into the profession and working more and being like, oh, where is everybody? So a similar experience to what you had. When did you start to realize, oh, there really is a dearth here and there really needs to be some more action? Yeah, I, you know, in college, I was like, okay, it's because I'm in middle of nowhere, Missouri, right? Right. (laughs) In high school, I was like, okay, I'm in a PWI high school, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in an A-plus high school. There's not going to be any teachers of color. College, same thing. But when I moved to Chicago, you know, Mm -hmm. a diverse city like Chicago, and I'm still on the struggle bus, I was like, (laughs) okay, hold on. (laughs) Like, I I can't keep excusing it away. There is a problem here. Yes. Yeah. And so I did some digging and that's when I discovered at the time we had maybe 105,000 plus or minus licensed architects living and less than 500 were black women architects. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where the name was born out of was the fact that we hadn't reached 500 living in the U S yet. So it was just culture shock <laughs> for all of us on many right. levels. But initially I started it as a research initiative, you yeah. know, just learning more about all of you and just figuring out <laughs> what this thing could be. And then it, I took the research and turned it into a lecture. So then I traveled all over the country, talked to these different groups. Mm-hmm. It's and- super dope lecture, by the way. I caught it at the <laughs> Noma Brooklyn conference. I was like, okay, get it here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. But yeah, so then it turned into that, right? And, and then I said, okay, there has to be more, right? And so that's where you have the platform today. So It went from a national kind of research initiative and lecture to this kind of global platform Mm -hmm. where it is concrete. It lives on the web and there is a lecture that goes with it that has evolved quite a bit, but it became global because we learned that even in countries where Black women are not a minority, Mm -hmm. they're still a minority in our industry. And so they deserve to be celebrated and elevated as well. Heck yeah. 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 So black girl magic. All yes. The all the way around. <laughs> all the way around. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, I'm loving all this. All right. Why don't we wrap up on talking about your hopes for the future of 
architecture education or for the next 500? Because um, I feel like so much of the work that you're doing is really centering Black girls, Black women who are getting into the profession, helping them get through their journey to become their badass selves. And so I guess what are some of the things that you hope First 500 will help achieve? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, I think us becoming a more equitable industry, we have so much work to do. I I just, <laughs> it's like, it's not going to be fixed in either of our lifetimes, Nikita, correct, but, correct. but I hope that we can like move this needle mm-hmm. exponentially in our lifetime, right. Yes. And be able to hand that torch off to some phenomenal leaders to take it and run with it. Yeah. My hope for the future generations, and I'm just going to say black women leaders yes, is to keep using your voice, you know, keep showing up in spaces where true changes get into the policy side of things, because that ultimately controls a lot of our built environment, right? Which is also why I've never been interested in politics, but mm-hmm. now I'm a commissioner, right? Yeah. But no, I, I was just going to say, use your voice, you know? And unfortunately, we do carry this burden of representing populations of people who voices have been silenced for so long and have right. not been in these spaces. So use that, empower yourself to just show up and be present and use your voice. Yes. I love that. And one of the things that I always go back to whenever I get nervous or imposter syndrome pops up, whenever I'm navigating spaces where I'm like, oh, there's typically not people who look like me here. It's just a reminder that most people that have been in those spaces, they're just regular, regular people too. They don't know. Everyone is making it up as they go along for the most part. And so why not let our voices be the ones there to actually continue the conversation forward in a way that's going to be more just just yes. by virtue of us knowing what it's like to be on the receiving end of injustice. So I love that, that you're encouraging kids to do that or encouraging women and girls to do that because for so many of us are taught to be seen and not heard, to be polite, mm. to be ladylike, to mm. not be confrontational. Like all of the BS of like being a proper woman, being ladylike, we don't really have that time anymore. Time is of the essence for us to actually use our voice, like you're saying. My motto, and I'll end with this, Nikita, is Mm -hmm. my motto that I live by, and I've used this quote for everything, literally, is if there is no well to drink from, dig until you create one. I love it. Um, Essentially, every space that I've stepped into, I didn't have the example there before Mm -hmm. me to emulate and to follow behind. And that's okay. That does not mean you're in the wrong space. It means that you're creating that space now. I love that. Oh, I love that. A big thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This week's episode was produced by Fernando Queiroz. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. 
We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them And setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.